I make no apology this morning that today's sermon has been inspired by a study of mind with a close friend of mine. His name is John Piper, my buddy. I've been reading a book this week that Piper wrote, which I think is probably his chief work of his lifetime, unless he has another one up his sleeve in his later years. It's a book called Providence, and it really is a combination of so many of his works over the years, and it has been on my mind on a regular basis this year, and given the opportunity to preach out of our series, I wanted to spend the morning talking about providence, about God's providence. What comes to your mind when you think about the word providence? or the providence of God. Before we spend time this morning thinking about the word providence, and in particular, obviously, God's providence, we need to talk for a little while about purpose, about God's purpose. I was thinking about purpose this week reading the news. There's a new telescope that we, that NASA, I say we, NASA launched on Christmas Day, while you were opening your presents and eating turkey, NASA was launching a historical satellite into space, a $10 billion telescope, Christmas Day. It's going to stay in orbit around the sun, a million miles outside of our orbit. It is said to be unlike anything NASA or anyone else has ever sent into space for observing our universe. The way they describe the impact of this telescope, well, you can say they have big hopes. Here's how the telescope is reported in the news and from NASA. From the tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself, James Webb Space Telescope should be able to detect infrared light from the earliest instances of the universe. Almost all the way back to the Big Bang. It is said the human eye can only see fresh light, but the James Webb Telescope can see infrared light, which is supposedly as old as the beginning of the universe itself. The telescope, it is said, is going to, quote, advance the human race. Thousands of scientists are lined up for the data, calling it a miraculous gift the chance to see back in time and learn, perhaps, how all this came to be. Now, as a Christian, I am not at all intimidated by science or scientific discoveries. I'm very curious about what they find, although I will likely need some interpretation of the words they are using. But think of what NASA is saying. The edge of time, the beginning, advanced the human race, discovering how all this came to be. These phrases don't just describe physics and astronomy. Inherent in these pursuits are meaning and purpose. Meaning and purpose. We need meaning and purpose. To make sense of the world. Meaning and purpose. 
Think about what happened last year. Well, just in your life, just think of some major headlines. I was doing this myself December 31st. Think about some of the major headlines from 2021. The year began with the insurrection on January 6th, and then the connected impeachment of President Trump. In February, we, we froze as a state. Kyle Rittenhouse, George Floyd, America's departure from Afghanistan, vaccines, Delta, Omicron, Russia and the Ukraine, Waukesha, Wisconsin, wildfires, snowstorms, tornadoes. I mean, these are just a few headlines from our nation last year. And could I not go on about our own lives? Deaths, miscarriages, sicknesses, jobs lost, division, weakness, trials, and temptation. As I thought about this telescope launching out a million miles from our planet to look 400 million miles out into the universe, and hear how they talked about it, I just was wondering, are there any answers out there in the 13 billion year old infrared light waves that can make sense of my life and of our world? Is there a newspaper paper headline, 13 billion years old, out there in the infrared light that can make sense of what's going on in the world. What is this for? Why are we here? What does it mean to even exist? What are we doing? The earth is spinning. It's in orbit around the earth at 67,000 miles an hour. While we are in this service today, unless we get out early, and I do not intend to do that, we will have gone 100,000 miles in orbit. Think about that as a creature, just where we are and who we are and what we're doing and how we got here. And Some of us are just entertained enough in the world that we haven't asked a deep question about existence in a while, if at all. I think this could be one of the greatest offenses that we could offer to God, to never question our own existence, to never question our own purpose. Just accept that we exist. We, here we are. What's life about? I don't know. We're just here. Who are we? What are we here for? What is this all made for? What's the purpose? We would do very well to get a pen and some paper Ask ourselves some deep questions about the meaning of the world and the universe. Maybe stare out into the sky for a while and think about how far away everything is. Maybe look at the beauty of creation for a minute and just think, could this be accident? What's the purpose of flowers and bugs and creeks and snow and storms and color and sounds and smells, and I don't think it's an oversimplification to say there are only one of two answers. There is a very, very great universal purpose, or there really is no purpose. There's a point to our universe, or it is, at the very best, semi-ordered, meaningless. 
Which is it? Here is something that concerns me about Christians in today's age. I know a temptation in my own life. Christians are supposed to be the people on the earth with the greatest sense of purpose and value and beauty and wonder, yet sometimes we live like we are nothing but a bunch of cells and neurons and flesh, and we live for only a little physical entertainment or some adrenaline stimulation, a chemical reaction. That is, we live just like we accuse atheists of believing. Purposelessness. No meaning. But church friends, there is a great unimaginably high purpose to our existence. The purpose for which everything exists. The purpose for existence, the purpose for flesh and blood and bones and atoms and neurons and electricity and gravity and and magnetism and everything. The purpose for everything that exists. I mean, what a bold claim. I mean, who, who would even say such a thing about everything? But this is what we believe about God and about His Word and about the gospel. That God's own glory is the universal and eternal purpose of God. God's own glory, God's own glory is His universal and eternal purpose. Everything is for God's glory. You might say, well, you you are saying that He created the universe and everything in the universe that we do and see and enjoy and everything moves and buzzes and swirls and spins the stars. Yes, a thousand times God created, He ordered, He oversees the world, the universe, the orbit, the infrared light for His glory. That's His chief purpose chief, highest purpose in everything that he does. I want to ask you this morning, do you love that? Do you love it that God is for his glory? Or does it bore you? Or is it maybe even a bit off-putting to you? God created the world for his own glory? How vain of him. Unless we have been helped by the Holy Spirit... We cannot like it. We can't like it. In his book, and I'm only going to borrow from Piper when I mention him him this morning. In his book on providence, except that everything this morning has been helped by him. In his book on providence, Pastor John Piper says this, I'm tempted to say that modern people find it almost impossible to receive with thankfulness and joy the relentless relentless witness of the Bible that God consistently acts for the sake of His glory. I have in in mind texts such as Isaiah 48, which we read this morning, where God says, My glory I will not give to another. That's this truth statement by God about everything He does. I will not give my glory to another. But Piper continues, I wrote that I am tempted to say modern people resist this divine self-examined exaltation rather than rejoicing in it. But upon further reflection, I realize that this resistance is not unique to modern people. It is human. It's not a modern phenomenon. 
that mankind resists the glory of God. It's not a New Age thing. It's not an American secular culture thing. It's a human thing. We are resistant in our hearts toward the glory of God. Without the Spirit of God, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 7 and 8, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Likewise, in Colossians 1, reminded that without Christ, we are alienated and hostile in mind towards God. Our great problem as humanity is not that we have no sense that there is a God out there, that we have no sense of Him having a purpose, and that we have no sense of glory and, and good and any holy sentiment in the world. No, we're grasping for meaning and for purpose. That's how Hallmark and Disney and Discovery make money. They make shows about grasping for, for meaning and for glory. But we have just enough glory of a gl- knowledge of a glorious existence and yet just enough depravity that we can't see it truly. Romans chapter 1 verse 19 says, For what we cannot know about God, for we can, what can be known about God is plain to them, to all, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. We know. We know. We, we know that God is out there. We know that God exists and that he is in supreme command, but we just don't like God's purpose. God just seems so God-centered. To us in our fallen state, God seems like another Instagram celebrity showing off to get more followers. But if we're going to make sense of the world, if the world's going to have any coherence about itself, if we're going to make sense of ourselves, it can only be in the context of the greatest purpose for the creation of the whole world, which is the glory of God. This is the testimony of the Bible on every single page. Every chapter, every era of Old Testament history and New Testament history, Old Testament theology and prophecy, New Testament doctrine and prophecy, it all has God's glory written into it explicitly. We see it in passages like what we refer to as the doxology in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 to 36. Romans 11, 33 to 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul re- recalling the ways of God's salvation. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's Paul's way of summarizing everything God ever has done in the grand narrative of salvation. Over and over through Isaiah, God talks like this about Israel in these terms. Isaiah 49, verse 3, just one example. To Israel, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. When God defeated Pharaoh, that great display of his power, he said in Exodus 14, why was God overcoming Pharaoh? And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. What was it about? What was the Exodus about? What was the salvation of God's people about? Was it just about saving? It wasn't the chief aim. God will get glory over Pharaoh. 
Even when Jesus went to the cross, and when he was just hours away from dying that painful, gruesome death on the cross in the place of sinners, how did Jesus begin his final prayer in John chapter 17? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus knew that even the cross was for the purpose of God's glorification. Psalm 19.1 helps us see that everything in creation, every picture the James Webb Telescope is going to take is going to sing this song. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You go to the darkest pit and the darkest hour of humanity or the darkest impossible to reach crevices of the universe and you will find God doing the same thing everywhere you find Him doing anything. I will not yield my glory to another. Paul says it like this when preaching against idolatry in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Have you settled in your heart that God's supreme affection is God's own glory? I do not want to caveat this to death this morning. Not with how I've even preached this before. Yeah, God's about His glory, but God is really for your joy. It is. We're to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Piper changes that catechism to say we glorify God by enjoying Him forever. But here's a, here I think is a danger in Western Christianity today, in the Western culture. We are so in tune with our own joy and our own pleasure that we hear the Bible say God does everything for His own glory, and it can seem offensive to us. Wait a minute. What about my joy? What about my experience? Has God forgotten about my experience? And God's glory is first an affront to our plans at the lake and our purchases and our saving and our Christmas and all the things we love. It's an affront to those things. And if we hear things like, oh, well, God is glorified when we enjoy Him, it's very sneaky, but it's very possible that our sinful hearts say, oh, I knew it. I knew God had my joy at the center of His plan. And just like that, we switch so fast from God's glory being the purpose to my joy being His singular purpose. And instead of marrying our joy and His glory, instead of binding our joy to His glory together, we so easily go, phew, close one. I, it almost seemed like everything is for God's glory. Glad to know it's really for my joy. And just like that, we love our own joy more than God's glory. 
which means we will miss both God's glory and our true joy. When we do this, when we make this trade, our own joy instead of God's glory as chief in our own hearts. We do exactly what Paul says every other depraved sinner in the world ever has done. To trade the glory of God is to fundamentally do, is to fundamentally reject God, according to Romans 1. Paul says, in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they, the world, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We, we trade God's glory for some earthly pleasure, some earthly glory, some, something of mankind that, that we can make or that we can see, that we can control. So we, we ought to be very careful not to do that. Just run so quickly from God's glory to what about our happiness? Because we'll miss both. Just see God's glory at the center for everything he has ever done, everything he is doing right now, everything he's ever going to do in eternity forward. Get that tattooed on your heart. Don't exchange it for anything else. Don't make another purpose of God higher than the purpose of God's glory in your view. God does everything for his own glory. And if that's not what we love and what we're living and what we believe, we will continually be frustrated by our crashing into God's purpose. We will constantly find God's not near as concerned about our joy in the way we thought God was. He seems to be concerned about something else all entirely together. But when you have God's glory, his own glory, as the chief purpose in his mind and in his will, you begin to make sense of everything underneath that. Every little purpose, every other purpose, every daily purpose, every occurrence, every instance, every circumstance, you can make sense of it. That's the purpose of God. Providence is God seeing to his purpose. Providence is God seeing to his purpose. Let me read a little section from Piper's book, which I think is worth the money that it costs to buy the book, especially given that it's free as a PDF online. The building blocks, blocks of providence. The word providence is built from the word provide which has two parts. Pro, Latin for forward or on behalf of, and vide, Latin to see. So that you might think the word provide would mean to see forward or foresee, but it doesn't. It means to supply what is needed, to give sustenance or support, so in reference to God, the noun providence has come to mean the act of God purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. We have an English idiom that goes like this. So helpful. I'll see to it. 
You ever tell someone like that? You ever talk to someone like that? I'll see to it. Like all idioms, it means more than the words taken individually. They seem to signify. I'll see to in English means I'll take care of it, which is itself an idiom. I'll provide for that. I'll see or, or make sure that it happens. So it could be that putting the Latin vide, see, together with the Latin pro, to or toward, produced see to and came to mean more than just foresee, but to mean see to it in the sense of take care of it or see that it happens. That would be what we mean by God's providence. He sees to it that things happen in a certain way. Providence. God seeing to it that things happen in a certain way. You can see God stated about himself in Isaiah 46, verse 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, ye transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. That will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the yeast, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. What God purposes, he then sees too. His purpose is his glory. His providence on the earth is him seeing to his own glory. Listen, in one sense, we may never know what God is doing in the world. I don't know how many times in the 15 years of full-time ministry someone has come to me in counseling or lunch. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And I think it took me a while, but my answer finally began to be first out of my mouth, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why Omicron. I don't know why tornadoes in Kentucky. I don't know why this president or that president. I don't know why your loved one didn't make it. I don't know why you haven't been given what you asked for. I don't know why you're still single. I don't know why you don't have children. I don't know why this way and that way. I don't know why this pain or this sin is allowed or this temptation will not leave you alone. I don't know why. I don't know why about those things, what God is, His wisdom is for those things in that moment for your life. But we can always know what God is doing in everything He does in the world. God is providentially Seeing too, that is, his own glory. You can always know that God is seeing too his own glory. So the more I go through ministry, the more I say first, I don't know. But then come back with, but somehow God must be for his own glory. Consider Joseph's life. The great grandson of Abraham. God saw to his purposes through Joseph being thrown into a pit by his own brothers, sold as a slave, falsely accused, imprisoned, only to rise to power in Egypt, then in order to save his brothers from famine. 
When Joseph's brothers, who mistreated him, were eventually standing before him, revealed after Joseph, after excuse me, Jacob had died, they believed Joseph was about to exact his revenge on them and kill them using all of his Egyptian power and authority. But what did Joseph say to them in Genesis chapter 50? Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Listen to Joseph's words. You threw me in a pit. You, you sold me into slavery. You, you told dad that I was dead. But Joseph says, don't, don't fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph using his power and wealth as an Egyptian to provide food for his family. In other words, Joseph says, God saw to his plans through your evil deeds. But then in the following another bitter providence, God's people were enslaved. Where? For 400 years. In Egypt. But then in Exodus 14, God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh. This is the backbone of the entire biblical narrative. Every single turn of his people's history, every interaction of God with his people and throughout the world has his glory as his purpose. And God sees to it himself, Adam and Noah, Moses, David, the prophets. They're all sagas where God has explicitly stated his purpose to be his own glory. And God's the one maneuvering the world, men and women and weather and storms and warfare and buildings to make sure that he is glorified on the earth. When Israel is coming into the promised land, God sees to it that no enemy can overcome them that his glory would go with his people. But when Israel begins to sin against God, God makes sure that they can't win a war with all of their men on the battlefield so that he maintains glory among his people. When Israel's in a generational idolatry, God sees to it that Babylon comes, an entire nation comes. I love how Habakkuk talk, talks about it. God says, I whistle for Babylon like a dog to come. God will not allow his name to be dishonored for his glory to be thrown in the dirt when his people are in idolatry, forsaking him. But then at the end of the exile, when Israel is in exile and his plans for their discipline are done and fulfilled 70 years in, God sees to it that Cyrus frees them. God sees to it that Babylon just says, I'm done. And they just let go. God's purpose is accomplished through victory, through triumph, as well as defeat and loss. God's providence is through the calm, it's through the storm. God works as easily and as wisely in the dark as he does in the light. God perfectly sees to his glory through righteousness and through sin without discretion. Christians, we may never know why God is doing this certain part of our lives or why he is doing and ordering things this way, but we can also always know that our lives are part of God's grand providence for the purpose of his glory. I want us to consider where is the central providential work of God towards his own glory? What is the central providential work, that, that one providential work of God towards his own glory? There is no greater display of God seeing to his own glory 
than God seeing to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for the salvation of his people. Perhaps two of the most precious passages to me have God's providence and his purposes in mind. Acts 4 and Colossians chapter 2. Acts chapter 4, the disciples are in trouble. Their Lord has been crucified, risen, and ascended. They are left being pursued and thrown in prison for speaking about Jesus' name. They're told never to talk in his name anymore. But when they get together and pray in Acts 4, they recall God's sovereignty and his providence. They recall that when Jesus went to the cross, it was God seeing to it. In the midst of their own persecution, they remembered that it was God who saw to the cross. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 28. When they heard it, when they told they were not to speak in his name any longer, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, recalling prophetically what, their time, what they were witnessing in their time. Acts 4, 27, they pray, for truly in this city there were gathered together Against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This they used to pray for boldness to keep preaching the word. That whole scene, the whole course of events, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel saying, we have no king but Caesar, and crucify him, crucify him. Pilate washing his hands, Herod sending him back to Pilate. All all of these against your holy servant Jesus, they prayed. How did they all get there? How did Jesus get served up to be crucified like a lamb as sacrifice? It says, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I mean, we could spend hours connecting the entire old pro the Old Testament from Genesis forward, from Eve's seed forward, how everything God is ordaining toward the crucifixion of his son for sinners. The whole plan, the whole purpose of God was to save mankind from their sin by Jesus Christ dying for sinners. Surely if you were there, you'd be asking, or like Peter, even opposing this plan in real time. Why is Jesus dying on the cross? That's exactly what what Peter did in Matthew chapter 16. I'll never let you go to the cross and die. That's foolishness, ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. A dead Savior is not a helpful Savior. A dead Messiah doesn't save us from Rome. But God was seeing to the salvation of sinners 
by seeing two Jesus laid on the cross like a lamb, slain so his blood would be shed for sin to be forgiven. And God saw to our salvation through the deeds of even evil men doing evil and wicked things. What can we say about our salvation, about Christ and God's providence, except, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how unscrutable His ways. From the beginning, before the foundation of the world, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21, God is seeing to His glory toward, by, and through Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? What does it mean that God's great purpose is providentially ordering the world for the crucifixion? Another favorite passage of mine, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13-14. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, 14. Paul recalling what it means for Jesus to have died. He's talking to Christians, those who are believing and trusting in Christ, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. God did it. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. The record of all of our sin stood against us. It's a debt before God that has to be paid. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, friends, may we never get over this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All the orchestration over evil, all the centuries of prophetic foresight and messianic fulfillment, all the types of Christ to get us ready, all the loss and all the lessons in the law of Israel, God's providence over wickedness and righteousness alike, all display in his plan with Herod and Pontius Pilate to see Jesus on the cross. And when it came time to hit the nails into the cross. It was not just Roman soldiers nailing Jesus' hands and feet to the cross. God was seeing to our forgiveness by nailing the record of our debt to the cross. At the center of the apex of God seeing to his purpose, his own glory is the glory of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. There God displays his power, his sovereignty, his wisdom, and his grace all in one universal moment. Let me encourage you this morning to believe that God is seeing to his glory and believe that it is good. Start at the cross and work your way out into every other part of existence, every other second of your life from there. If God can bring glory to himself and salvation to us through the dark wickedness of the cross of Jesus Christ, we cannot keep questioning everything else God does in our lives. 
God is not there to provide, to see to every single sinful desire you have. I nearly entitled this first point of application, really it's the only point, quit being a baby. But it just wasn't defined clearly enough. So instead I said, believe God is seeing to his glory and believe that it is good. Quit being upset and turned inside out because someone didn't call you or text you or because your job interview didn't go the way it was supposed to because you don't have a certain friend or friendship the way you want. You don't have a spouse or your spouse is depressed, you're sick, you're poor, you can't get children, you got too many children. Someone said your hair looks poofy, your team lost. Temper tantrums for not getting what you want is how babies act. Christian, don't be 20 or 40 or 60 years old and still be in your terrible twos spiritually. Listen, James defines spiritual temper tantrums that turn into division in the church and other people in this way in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, the things you want, the things you purpose in your heart are at war within you? My translation would be, is not the reason that you guys are all fighting like two-year-olds because no one's providing for or seeing to your passions or your desires. You see, all the people in the world around you as role players in your life, they are all there in your mind to see to your comfort and to see to your authority and to see to your plan and your will and what you want. And when they don't see to your every sinful desire where you are at the center, you get angry or hurt or discouraged. Repent of expecting God and everyone else to see to your passions and your desires. Can we have good holy desires? Of course. But replace what is in the flesh and what is you-centered with believing that God is doing everything to his glory, to his glory. That, that my passions in my life that I don't get seen to are in the way of God seeing to his glory. When encouraging a suffering church, a church questioning God's provision, God's purpose, Paul said to the Romans in part, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I wish I would have had more time to study that this week, but it is not far from the idea of provide and providence. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's providence 
never means for my glory and forget you. For my glory. I don't care about mankind. I don't care what happens to them. God's seeing to His glory and God's providence for His people first in Christ is one thing. And if God is going to make the forgiveness of your sin the crowning means of His own glorification, will God not see to His glory and all of His wisdom and all of His perfection and all of His timing and all of His power and all the other things in our life? Will He not? One of the things that I think is so helpful to me to, to learn over the years from this passage in Romans 8.32 that God's not, he's not holding his best behind his back. He's not going, well, you know, I'm going to forgive your sin, but, you know, I just, when it comes to, like, happiness and joy and things going your way, I'm just going to play with you. I'm just going to treat you like a hamster in a cage, get a wheel, then I'm going to build another little cage over here. I'm going to put a tunnel. So you think you're going somewhere, but you're just going into another cage. That's God's relationship with us. He gives us a little bit, but he's holding back. No, no, no. When God gave us Christ for his own glory, he reached deep into the treasure and pulled it all up and said, here it is. And if I'll give you this, don't you think there's a thing, not a thing that I would not give? Learn, practice, look for how God is seeing to His own glory every day in your life. Look for God's eternal purpose providentially worked out in temporal circumstances. Because that's what God's doing. That's what He's always doing. Look for God's eternal purpose providentially worked out in temporal circumstances. Because it's going to be tested and tried. Do you really believe that God does everything for His glory and that it is good and that even wicked, evil, troublesome things can be means of God's own glory? We test what God has done on the cross can actually work in all of our lives. Are you ready to comprehend God using one of the most beautiful and serene scenes known to man, a silent, snow-covered landscape, to be the means He uses to put out the fire that burned down your house? Or in the case of Colorado this week, over a thousand houses. Coming to us this weekend are pictures of still smoldering piles of house frames and furniture blanketed in 10 inches of snow. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that Colorado just experienced the most destructive fire in history. 30,000 or more evacuated from their homes. A thousand homes burned to the ground in seconds as hurricane force winds blew across northwest Denver suburbs. 
Several reported that one moment the fire was way over there, the next moment their house is in ashes. Firefighters could not do anything but get people out and watch. And then strangely, Friday and going into the weekend, the snow came. The Wall Street Journal reported several inches of snow and temperatures in the single digits cast an eerie scene amid still smoldering remains of homes. Despite the shocking change in the weather, the smell of smoke still permeated empty streets blocked off by National Guard troops in Humvees. In fact, the cities that were probably crying out for help and for rain and for some precipitation got snow that came in such cold weather that residents who had been evacuated or those who had been on vacation were pleading with friends and neighbors to go back into the house and neighborhoods to shut off the water of homes that were still there to keep their houses from freezing and then flooding. One minute we're praying for God to send precipitation to put out the fires. Then God sends single-digit frozen precipitation causing us to turn off our water in the fire zone. The New York Times reports the town of Superior said it was shutting off water in the fire zone on Saturday to prevent additional damage. I mean, just imagine the irony. The city is shutting off water in the fire zone. This is a disappointment on disappointment, said Allie Bodie, a nurse whose family fled its home and was packed into a house with relatives. On top of everything else, Her husband tested positive for the coronavirus, and they were isolating in a hotel on Saturday. She said, we just looked at each other in disbelief. Snow-covered, burned-down homes, water turned off, got COVID. What a way to go into a new year. Christians, What is God doing? There is not a single wavelength of 13 billion year old light in the universe that can tell us the simple truth of the clarity of God's word. That he will not yield his glory to another. That's what he does. How to snow-covered, burned-down homes? I mean, if it just snowed a few days earlier, just a few days earlier, maybe how does this glorify God? I don't know. I don't know every purpose God has for every instance in the world. But God uses all kinds of tragedy, all kinds of evil to bring about good. Good that we could never imagine. Even the good of the cross, the greatest thing God has ever done, came through the worst sin in the world. Christ's own crucifixion became our salvation. The cross of Jesus Christ, God seeing to our salvation. That's where we go to get our gut checked. To grow in faith that everything God is doing in the world, the most seemingly 
evil, the most seemingly God uncaring events in the world. Houses burning down, covered with snow. We may not know exactly right now, but we can know that everything God does is Him seeing to His glory in the world. And we can glorify Him because we have Him no matter what we lose. God's purpose of His own glorification frees us to forsake self-preservation, self-provision, frees us to demand provision and seeing to everything we need from everyone else. And it frees us instead to believe God's going to see to His glory providentially in our lives and we can be about love. We can be about patience. We can be about generosity. We can be about forgiveness. We can love our enemies because we know that God in Christ for our sin has seen to His glory and we know that God's commitment in the world has no higher commitment than His own glory in the end. Let's pray. God, we pray and ask for your help. What we've heard in your word, that what we've sung, that we've heard read today, will just echo in our hearts through this week, that it would transform our minds, that it would send us into singing this week, that it would send us into repentance this week. So I pray that you would protect us, help us by your spirit, by your word, guard us against expecting everyone else in the world to see to our desires. Help us instead to see that you are seeing to your own glory. Climax being in the cross, trusting you do everything for your glory, holding nothing back from us, free to love one another, free to give generously, free to be about others, trusting your providence. Thank you for last year, We pray for this year, for you to be glorified, and for our hearts to be about your glory as you are. Take just a moment to reflect upon God's word, what we've sung, what we've read today, before we close. Father, thank you that your glory means our salvation. Thank you that you seeking your own glory is you displaying your grace and mercy to sinners like us. We give you praise. We exalt you. We glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.